Thank you, Mr. Sands. Thank you to Dr. Vermont for his nice presentation. I want to thank uh, Institute Buddha Studies for putting together this symposium. I want to thank uh, my temple members for all their hard work here today. Um, actually, we wouldn't have had the PowerPoint presentation if one of our members, Ray Fields, donated the projector. Now, I don't have a PowerPoint projector, and I don't have a PhD. So, just, I'm the only one speaking today that doesn't have a PhD. So, just like Dr. Clance, if I ask you to call me doctor, I'm just being friendly. <laughs> I'm briefly summarizing what I'm going to say here, which is that, uh, oh, by the way, my paper that I'm going to read is available in the back of the room or outside. I brought about 80 copies. That's important with more environmental concerns on it. Um, my point is that, of course, as Gordon pointed out, the teaching that there is no soul is absolutely fundamental to Buddhism, every school of Buddhism. Uh, the specific teaching is Amasa. This does mean no soul. It does not mean no soul. So Gordon, Vermont, and I are essentially very similar here, that there is a concrete uh, sense of self which is not denied in Buddhism. <coughs> Particularly in the Pure Land tradition, I'm suggesting that selfhood is assumed to be compatible with uh, the teaching of Anatta, and that selfhood is presumed in our practice. So there's no soul, but there is a self. So what's the self? I, you might imagine, I'm not going to tell you that today. But uh, it is, in part, as uh, Dr. Vermont suggested, uh, connected with the biological unification. The body is the unification of subprocesses. And that activity of unifying sub-processes we see in the body is very similar to what the self is. The self is, as was mentioned in Dr. Vermont's presentation, a um, protagonist in a story, a protagonist in a narrative. And this narrative is very important. The person before. Uh, the self is the subject of action, <coughs> and for us, the subject of experience. I won't go into my usual rap about how mutably it is a subject of action. But not in my mind the subject of experience, the singular subject of experience. Um, what's more, this uh, modern development in philosophy, including some of the people mentioned earlier, uh, uh, and not mentioned, too, like Recur, not to call Murrow for reminding me how to pronounce the same properly, I forgot, but Paul Recur is important along with people like Jerry Daw in bringing up this narrative process, and this is very much important in understanding Trinidad Buddhism when you look at the stress that Shinran puts on the narrative of Dharmaka. As Gordon was suggesting, uh, we're supposed to be taking this all symbolically. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? What does that mean? This narrative of Dharmaka, making vows and fulfilling those vows and becoming a meat of Buddha is absolutely central to Chiron Buddhism and not removed by something more scientific. How does that all that? You know, this paper that some of you would have had a chance to pick up no, no, I'll say it again. And, uh, you know, actually, I'm not saying very much, but on the other hand, it's rather long. The left hand is saying a longer ship. So I'm going to cut two more paragraphs off. I'm going to jump in. Uh, I, I, what uh, Dr. Payne announced in my topic was the synopsis I gave to him about a year ago. Uh, the actual topic is basing our on the primal vow, and uh, some of you have picked up copies. I'm going to start on the uh, third paragraph. <coughs> Discerning the non-substantiality of the self is not facilitated by pretending that it is not real or important. Rather than trying to deconstruct the self, the streams of lived Buddhist spirituality that our school, the Jewish Yenishu Hongajiha, 
is situated within points out its interdependence. The Hindu and Jain notion of the soul, the Atman, is thought to name a reality that is eternal, uniquely self-same, non-physical, and which constitutes the essence of personal identity. In pure life practice, we rely upon the fundamental Valhamida, which defines the Buddha and ourselves in terms of one another. This sort of interdependence is consistent with the Mahayana view that no thing and no one possesses an essence. What we have in this form of Buddhist practice is, I believe, a supposition of a coherent process of ongoing character building, where the self is not uniquely self-same. There is paradox to this way of thinking. Nonetheless, if we try to construct a conceptualization of the subjectivity or personhood assumed in men to practice, I think this is what we get. The vows of Omeda Buddha are the fulfillment of the ages-long quest of the Bodhisattva Dharmakara. The person, Dharmakara, in the narrative of the largest sutra, has partially discerned and is deliberately reinforcing the interdependent nature of the process of building self-identity. The Bodhisattva Dharmakara, who makes the vows, is a paradigm or classic exemplar of the process of forging a character that is based upon embracing one's dependence upon others. Dharmakara defines the Buddha he will become Amida in terms of the ability to lead others to enlightenment as pure and thoroughgoing as his own. This pure land tradition within Mahayana, particularly as it is worked out in the thought and practice of Shinrashani, displays an understanding of the self as inseparable from others as rejecting unique self-statements, without the error of implying that personal identity is unreal, and without reducing it to some static model such as that of a cart. I'm going to skip the next section. I know it's a little snippers in the blue colors. I'm going to jump over to page two, middle of the page, the large paragraph on that page that begins at this time. At this time, I want to especially emphasize the role of narrative in our self-understanding. The vows of Dharmakara and his fulfillment of them in becoming Amitabhutta are explained in narrative fashion in the largest sister Amitabhutta. This narrative is often described with terms like symbolic or metaphorical. But the vows in the narrative have real descriptive functions. There is, to speak in the old way, an isomorphism, a sameness of form between the vows in the text and what is actually happening in the practices of life and in the compassionate activity of Amita Buddha. The fundamental structure of the vows, if I do not fulfill this promise, may not contain enlightenment, shows the interdependent nature of Amita's identity. Samakara Bodhisattva is promising to become a Buddha named Amida, whose identity is interdependent with the liberation of those who entrust themselves to his vow power. Interdependent identity is built into Samakara's vow, vow of Amida. Even the narrative of his early development lacks the independent seeker atmosphere of Shakyamuni's life. The sutras concerning other Buddhas usually pattern the life story of, for example, a Soviet 
closely after the recorded history of Shakyamuni's life. One major difference about the Maharas, Dharmakala's path to awakening should strike us. Dharmakala is said to have been taught by the enlightened Buddha, Lokasaramaka, whereas Shakyamuni is thought to have found all of his predominantly giant and Hindu teachers to be lacking, Dharmakala, who becomes Amida, depends upon a Buddha's instruction at the outset of his journey to become a Buddha himself. We see here a willingness to embrace dependence on others as a positive thing. Starting independence upon Buddha-Lokasaralaja, Dharmakara comes to thoroughly discern the interdependent nature of all life. In finally awakening thoroughly to Buddhahood, he has forged a startlingly a startling interdependence that started out with dependence. Perhaps there is a clue here to what true interdependence means. The narrative about Dharmakara's becoming Amida is itself metaphorical. Perhaps it is something like a primal archetype. The promise to liberate those who entrust themselves to the Buddha's enacting of those vows is not metaphorical or symbolic. We have the description of a promise to lead to enlightenment those who wish the help of the Buddha whom Dharmakala will become. There is no more accurate description of the primal vow that might replace the descriptions in the various texts. Or if we extract the basic content in those various texts, we get something like a promise to lead to freedom, happiness, penetrating wisdom, and tireless compassion, all who wish for help in such a quest. This is not a symbolic rendering. This is a real promise. That is to say, there is no more precise blueprint of the matter described in deference to which the fundamental vow of Amida Buddha could be considered a symbolic render. Unfortunately, Gordon, I'm not going to skip my reference to Hegel, if you so kindly alluded to. So I'm going to skip this, uh, this compressed two-paragraph intersubjective identity building and jump up to narratives not so grand. And I must warn you that uh, Dr. Richard Payne is not so sure that what I'm calling a grand narrative in his text is a grand narrative. And this is the section by the page, narrative not so grand. My reasons for discussing in a preliminary way the, interge- the intersubjective and narrative bases of identity formation do not include proffering a grand narrative for all Buddha. Richard Payne, sitting right over there, um, have recently attempted to trace a Buddhist grand narrative in brief outline. This narrative structure would start with a primal condition of ignorance and its consequent suffering, move into an arising of the intent to awaken, and culminate in insight and sentiment of all conditioned existence, and the liberation of all sentient beings. I do not mean either to champion or oppose such grand narratives that mean to be normative or descriptive of a normative process for all Buddhists. The narrative of the vow which I speak of as being involved in continuing formation of the the personhood of Shilohan Buddhists may well logically presuppose such a grand narrative. But the terms Dr. Payne is using in formulating the grand Buddhist narrative are terms foreign to the thinking of most Shilohan Buddhists in the past or at present. You would be hard-pressed, for example, to find a significant number of Joshin Buddhists who understand their lives in terms of progressing towards insight into emptiness. What he has said so far on this topic is quite good. 
He's showing how different the narrative behind Buddhist living is from the narrative that informs Christian living. Again, uh, quoting Dr. Richard Payne. Rather than the sequence of creation, fall, redemptive atonement, we have ignorance, intense awakening, and insight into emptiness. This is a very good attempt at contrasting Buddhist grand narratives to a Christian version. It can be argued that insight into emptiness can describe the fulfillment that will come to Chirland Buddhists at the conclusion of their journey. However, since very few actually on the Chirland path, and a minuscule number of Shinshu Buddhists would think about it this way, such a grand narrative is not useful in explaining the construction of personhood by Buddhist practitioners in Shinran's lineage. I do not really wish to provide my own version of the Shinshu grand narrative because it is beside the real point of this paper. My point is rather simple. Shinshuists continue to construct our personhood on the way to enlightenment in the pure land. While accepting the no-soul teaching on Atman as a denial of a uniquely self-same, spiritual, non-physical, eternal essence that underlies and accounts for personhood, Jyotishinshu Buddhists retain a coherent sense of self and continue to engage in character building. Recur, Paul Recur, also expresses suspicion of forming one grand narrative under which every aspect of character building could be unified. I share the reservations of Paul Kerr, as summarized by his longtime translator, Kathleen Blaney. This is primarily because every global totalizing project is necessarily reductive. A comprehensive philosophy of language would, in principle, resolve the diversity of discourses into an artificial unity and level off the specificity characterizing different language games. The way the feeling about the members who pass to enlightenment, the phenomenology of experience of individual practices, the ways of being rooted in the fundamental law of Amida vary rather widely. Some of the differing sensibilities that are time-honored within the Shin tradition would fail to fit together neatly into a single narrative. One Jodhishinshu Buddhist may very simply consider the Nembutsu the vocal expression of reliance combined with Amida Buddha's name in the terms when I call the Buddha's name it's the Buddha calling me. Not only the subjectivity of the Nemitsu practicer, the Nemitsu Shaw, is presupposed on this view, but a subjective dimension of Amida Buddha is presumed as well. This assumption that Amida Buddha exists as a subject is not is made not only at the level of naive literalism, but even the highest levels of Jodhishinshu philosophizing. The late Wajo Sensei, Urban Kakuwe Miyagi, inspired by the thought of Kitaro Nishida and George Wilhelm Friedrich von Hegel, amongst others, used to say, Amida Buddha is absolute subjectivity. The various ways we see Jodhishinshu Buddha thinking about issues such as the nature of the Nenbutsu, the meaning of enlightenment in Amida's pure realm, etc., are all based on rather straightforward assumptions about personal identity. Although he speaks in terms of the heart of the persons of Chiron Shinjin, Shinran's student Kyoshin has a universalistic uh, tendency in his view of what being born into Chiron means. Quoting Kyoshin, uh, the statement, they attained nirvana, 
means that when the heart of the person of true and real Shinji attains the fulfilled land at the end of his or her present life, that person becomes one with the life that is the heart of his avatar. For his reality is immeasurable life, and his activity is inseparable from immeasurable life. This narrative, including in oneness, is quite different from the perspective of another Shinran's closest disciple, Lenny, as also expressed in the Matosho collection of Shinran's letters. Whether one is left behind or goes before is surely a sorrowful thing to be parted by death. But the one who first attains Nirvana vows, without fail, to save those who are close to him first, and leave those with whom he has been karmically bound, his relatives, his friends. This extremely personal take on awakening to the auspices of Amida's pure realm and returning to save others closely parallels the oral teaching of Shinran as recorded in Article 5 of the Pani Show. We see Shinran and Leni, who has taken his master's teaching to heart, envisioning the genuine of enlightenment in terms of their relationship to persons for whom they care deeply. As a practicing Joshin Shibuddhist, I tend to see the various narratives, the various ways of being a Joshin Shibuddhist traveler, as different styles of basing the ongoing formation of personal character on the fundamental vow. Even this narrative structure, so here, if, I, if I'm giving a narrative structure of journalism here, it is. Experience the vocal members, for example, as the commitment to universal liberation. Receive Trusting confidence, Shinji. Progressively come to view the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion with distaste. Attain nirvana at the moment of death. Return to help first those we care deeply for, and then all sentient beings. This narrative may not be universal in the actual cause of dealing with all Shinji's. My categorizing other Shinran Buddhist way of living according to this particular narrative identity does not assume that they see their participation in Shinran tradition in the way that I describe. Despite using such an almost grand narrative in my own understanding of the Shinran way, I am not advocating the acceptance of such a narrative precisely because I believe that it would, to borrow Kathleen Blaney's phraseology quoted above, resolve the diversity of discourses into an artificial unity and level off the specificity characterizing different narrative understandings of their spiritual practice by various experimentalists around the globe. Again, I do not intend to formulate my own grand Buddhist narrative along the lines Richard Payne has begun to work. I am not even suggesting that a single narrative might apply to all traditions who put thinking and feeling about their religion. I simply want to remark that there is a natural supposition of the coherence and importance of personal subjectivity in the German stream of Mahayana tradition. This seems especially true of the Hongan Jihad school to which I belong. As I find the modern accentuation of narrative processes as part of identity formation persuasive, I have spent some time to the narrative in the background of German practice. Conclusion. Of course, when you say conclusion, I mean it's two, three pages left. Conclusion. It is somewhat embarrassing to say I 
Yeah, it is somewhat embarrassing to present this paper at an academic conference. The IBS Winter Symposium in 2008 has consisted of papers by competent and in most cases well-known scholars. I am not a scholar. I am a temple minister with concerns at what I do not mind calling a practice level. My concerns might even be described as pastoral. A Buddhist scholar will find nothing new in what I'm saying, nothing challenging, and probably nothing interesting. In conclusion, I am saying that the self is a real process that presupposes nothing like a soul to explain its identity. Scholars will rightly say that I'm only repeating the Mahayana position that the self exists in a conventional sense, but is empty of a plaza or unique essence. At a practice level, I think we need to honor the importance of character formation in a way that elevated talk of emptiness and no swabhava, no essence, does not facilitate. To say no more than that the self could be said to exist in a conventional sense is not enough. The individual Buddhist practitioner must not be led by scholars and meditative adepts to believe that personhood is not real or important. I agree in substance with Musashi Tachikawa when he says, At present, a human being is grasped as an irreplaceable individual, and it is only through relations among individuals that the formation of the individual can be understood. Buddhism, standing in opposition to such a conception of the individual, leads the individual to extinction and to authentic rebirth. It is when a relevant understanding of the person has been achieved that the concept of the Bodhisattva will take on meaning for our own age. In the Jyotishinji tradition, the self is taken for granted and treated in a very natural fashion. The remarks attributed to Shinran in Article 5 of the Tanisho display a discrete self considered to attain enlightenment through the auspices of the Buddha's pure land and influence. Having undergone death and immediate awakening to Buddha's, this person returns to earth and or other conditioned realms and immediately begins to help those with whom he or she has close karmic relations. Quoting Shinra now, as we called in the funny show by the unknown author that we all call Yui Adolfo, we don't really know. The, the uh, similarities to the passage earlier quoted in the Maso show, I think, makes it very clear that this is a reliable rendition of Shinra's thought. We're saying the name indeed a good act in which a person strove through his own power, then he might direct the merits of gain towards saving his father and mother. But this is not the case. If, however, he simply abandons such self-power and quickly attains enlightenment in pure land, he will be able to save all beings with transcendental powers and compassionate means, whatever karmic suffering they may be sinking into, in the six realms and foremost of earth. Beginning, with those with whom his life is deeply bound. We see here a very concrete personal focus on attaining enlightenment and then helping first those with whom we have a deep connection. This is quite different from the emphasis on liberating all beings without discriminating between those we love and those whom we have no special positive feeling towards, which is more often heard in Mahayana discussions. Of special interest to me here is that it is presumed to be the same person who aspires for entry into the transformative realm to be the Buddha's influence, who enters that realm, and who returns with transcendental powers and compassionate means. 
without trying to understand the unity of that subjectivity with a theoretical construct like soul or Atman, or denying it, relationship with us move forward on the path to awakening through the auspices of the Buddhist true land. I wonder if some of our friends in other streams of Buddhist practice may not have confused themselves with too much worrying about how the self can exist without a soul underlying it and accounting for its ongoing unity. I remember the synthesis of Dr. Michio Kaku, this was at the National Council about 12 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, many of you were there, uh, remarking Dr. Michio Kaku that as an undergraduate, he had questioned how wave phenomena could move through empty space. He was told by the physics professor, it just does, so get used to it. <laughs> this may be a very important answer to give to physics students. It is because many of them did not accept such dismissive comments that they went on to develop string theory. However, if you ask me how I can be the same person who was a deluded Catholic some four years ago, who is now a deluded Buddhist, and who will be and who will be a liberating factor in the enlightenment of others through the auspices of Vedas about power at some future time, I might well answer. That's how it is, so just get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> you may consider this very naive, but it is perhaps put forward for me by secondary naivete. While realizing how problematic all this is, while accepting that there is no soul, while not knowing how I can be the same subject of experience and action after death that I am now, I naively look forward to participating in the liberation of all suffering and deluded beings. Beginning with my personal friends, Moving on to assist all gentle persons of goodwill who are not yet enlightened, and only much later concerning myself with helping persons who embrace discrimination and advocate warfare. <laughs> Thank you.